Once more, we take as our sermon text the fourth commandment found in Exodus chapter 20. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal. You can see there that we continue our time in the Westminster Shorter. You can turn to page 972. Once I read the passage from Exodus, we'll look at question 60, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you can find in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal. There's also uh, the question printed for you on the bottom of the notes page as well for reference. But first, this is God's word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And then question 60 asks, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified? The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days. And spending the whole time in public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. What does it look like to Sabbath well? What does it look like to uh, observe the Sabbath well, I trust you have a general idea of what a well-spent day looks like. We're constantly making plans to spend the day well. And I think that's a good planning endeavor. Uh, Paul tells us explicitly, make good use of the time for the days are evil. And so the sense is that we're to understand that we're not granted an infinite number of days. The Lord has given us all a finite number of days. And we are to use them as uh, he has instructed us to. But I think we think less probably of how do we Sabbath well? How do we spend the Sabbath well? We've already argued that we're right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, which means we're right in the middle of the moral law, and that it didn't pass the sniff test to say, well, nine of them are valid, but this one's not anymore. And indeed, that's what we find in Reformed tradition teaching is here. The instruction is how, as Christians, we mark the Sabbath, receive the Sabbath, enter the Sabbath day, week in and week out. And so I ask you, how do we Sabbath well? That's the question that Westminster Shorter Catechism 60 takes up. We'll be spending this week in next, at least, working through that. First, we Sabbath by faith. You hear that even from the fourth commandment as it's relayed to us both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The ground, the basis 
of Israel keeping the Sabbath is interestingly different in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. So, for instance, the ground or the basis for keeping the Sabbath in Exodus 20 is, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Moses there directs Israel's attention to the fact that God made heaven and earth, and he did so in six days. And what's interesting is that Hebrews highlights that this is an article of faith. We believe that God made all things out of nothing by the word of his power. That's an article of faith. So our faith in God as creator is related to our Sabbath keeping. We believe he made heaven and earth. We believe he did it in six days and rested on the seventh day. And this meaningfully structures our existence as creatures. But this is received by faith. Not all believe that they have a maker. Some believe that they came about by some sort of impersonal process. As difficult as it is to imagine that to me, that takes more faith than the biblical narrative, quite frankly. But not all believe that we've been made by a creator infinite in power and wisdom and goodness, but we do. Moses says, well, if you do believe that he made you and he did so in the way that his word tells us, well, then this actually follows from that. We observe the day that our creator has set apart from us and has graciously called us into. So we observe the Sabbath by faith. Now, interestingly, the ground shifts in Deuteronomy 5. There, as Moses instructs them regarding the Sabbath as God's prophet, the ground there is found in verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The ground has shifted. It's a type of new creation. It's redemption that is the basis for their Sabbath observance there. But Mark, who he's talking to, he's not talking to the generation who experienced the Exodus. He's talking to a subsequent generation that must receive the word about redemption and believe it. So in the same, they're both in the same position. There's a testimony about who God is as creator, who he is as redeemer that's received by faith and thus serves as the basis for Sabbath observance. And it stands to reason. He's the one who made us. He's the one who redeemed us. And thus he structures our existence, both at the level of creature and as the, at the level of new creature. And so we receive this basic pattern in faith, acknowledging that through the Lord Jesus Christ, he made us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, he redeems us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, he welcomes us into rest. So it's not just faith in God as creator, faith in God as redeemer. It's also faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of the Sabbath. We believe that the Lord of the Sabbath has come. And thus, we observe the first day of the week and not the last day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the day the Lord of the Sabbath appointed. 
to mark his victory over sin, to mark his victory over death, to mark the truth of the new creation, to mark the truth that this world, though it is in the grip of the evil one, ultimately serves God's purposes. Now, the Lord of the Sabbath has instituted that. He didn't institute it in the same direct way that he instituted, say, the Lord's Prayer, where he said, pray like this, or the Lord's Supper, when he said, do this in remembrance of me. But he instituted it nonetheless through his holy apostles. That's what we find, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. On the first day of the week, they were gathered for worship. Paul, Luke, Silas, I don't know exactly who was with him. He's, I think he's in Ephesus. Oh, no, he's probably about, no, I think he is in Ephesus there. But it's on Sunday, Sunday, that Sunday, it goes, it goes all the way back to the resurrection day. Time itself, marking it in this way, links us to them. That faith, once for all, handed down from Christ unto the, unto the apostles, in which stream we must of necessity find ourselves, or we have no connection to Christ. This is one of the ways we avail ourselves of that Catholic, lower C, apostolic faith. By receiving from the hands of Christ's holy apostles what he himself instructed his church to do. They were gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to receive the ministry of the word. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16 too. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Every Sunday, Paul says, every first day of every week, there's no hint that this is a temporary arrangement. Until the Lord returns, bow to the Lord of the Sabbath in faith, gathering on this day. Here it's the, the giving of gifts, the giving of offerings. And there's a significance in that because Paul assumes then that every Sunday we have reason for thanksgiving. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. It doesn't matter what the circumstances God has you in through his providence, whether at a corporate level or at an individual level. Paul assumes that because you belong to God in Christ, you have reason to enter his courts with thanksgiving. And his house with praise. And you can overdo that and misunderstand that, but there's a real kernel of truth to that. Because those who have had their sins forgiven, those who are refreshed in the proclamation that God is propitiated towards his own through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, meaning wrath turned aside, favor established because of Christ. Certainly there's reason to give thanks. But not only that, he says, store up as the Lord prospers you. So he invites a different perspective on the entire course of life that's brought into focus on this day. He kept me. He kept me for another week. He saw me safely into his presence once more to refresh me with the proclamation of his love. 
Yeah, not everything is perfect, but my life is adorned with his loving kindness. For his mercies are new, morning by morning. And it instills in us a desire to pray, not for more mercies, although we might, but usually for eyes to see the mercies that we're probably overlooking. Mm. Refreshed with this proclamation, oh, he's always oh, that good. Oh, my life is adorned with his loving kindness. That's encouraging for us. And I'll say as a congregation, we're nothing like the Corinthians in terms of their particular frustrations. Praise be to God. I mean, think about what Paul is telling the Corinthians. He's saying, Corinthians, every Sunday you have reason to come before God with thanksgiving. Now, this is a deeply divided congregation. Some say of Paul, some say of Paul, some say of Cephas. Things aren't going great there. Sin has been celebrated in their midst. There's all sorts of marital problems that are going on as Paul is instructing them. They don't even acknowledge Paul's apostolic authority. They're running off with these pseudo-apostles. They're confused about so basic a doctrine as the resurrection. Things are not going well. And yet he says, you have reason to enter into God's presence and give thanks. Because you belong to Jesus Christ. Put all the mess aside. Get locked in on this. You are saints in Christ. That's how he greets them at the outset. And we give thanks. The Lord has blessed us with the season of green pastures and quiet waters here. That's not always the case in the churches of God. Many of you have been a part of that. We've all, most likely all, tasted something of the unique strife that can attend the household of God. Let's give thanks that... Truly, we can say, I was filled with joy and gladness when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. There's nothing waiting for us here that causes us angst, not at the massive level. That's God's gift. Let's rejoice. Let's pursue that peace. We have reason to come before him as a body and give thanks for the sweetness of God that he's extended to this little household. But it's also true of us at individual levels. There are individual issues that were going on at Corinth. And yet Paul says, you have reason to give thanks. So what are the specifics of your life? What are the circumstances that are difficult? Undoubtedly, they are many. Life is hard. It's a world of sin and misery. There is an ache that attends every day, and it seems to get more intense the older you get. There's no downplaying that. There's no denying that. There's no sort of happy, clappy, get over that. But all of that being said, the people of God still have reason to say, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance for the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. Church, we have reason to come in faith each week. But we must come in faith, is that right? Because circumstances, as difficult as they are, they threaten to eclipse the truth of God's word, that you have reason to rejoice, for you have been made recipient of another worldly love. Faith takes hold of that and says, yes, I do. 
even though there is a lot of noise that would lead me to believe otherwise. Beloved, we Sabbath by faith. Second, we Sabbath for one whole day. This is controversial. It's controversial. It says it right there. One whole day. It says it right here. Remember the Sabbath day. In Acts 20, Paul took the Lord's right all the way up to the max when he prolonged his speech until midnight. And then they cut him off. (laughs) He said, no, I cut the whole day. (laughs) So if I keep here till midnight, I don't want to hear a word out of you. Zip it. (laughs) That's a fair point. The Lord has a unique claim upon us on this day. Let's start with that. He has a unique claim upon us on this day. Now, it's not saying that the various parts of the day won't look different. It's not saying that we have to sit here from sunup until sundown or midnight to midnight. That's not what it's saying. But make no mistake, the whole day belongs uniquely to the Lord. And thus, we are looking first and foremost to his pleasure for that day and not our own pleasure. For very frequently, our instinctive pleasure is the problem. And our true pleasure comes into focus only as we align with his. This is obviously a difficult and strange notion for American Christianity. Likely you grew up the same way I grew up, if you grew up in the church at all, which was Sunday is a second Saturday. (laughs) Worship is to be tolerated at the beginning of the day, gotten through as quickly as possible so that we can get about our day as the Lord intended. (laughs) Worship is seen as an inconvenience. There's... Something that you just have to endure so you could go home and watch the Bears play or whoever you fill in there. Sunday's a day for sports and household work, catching up on what you didn't get around to on Saturday, carousing with friends, whatever the case may be. This is very much how I grew up. I don't, maybe yours was different. Now, make no mistake, there's an element of physical rest and refreshment that the Lord intends on this day, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it's secondary. Because the true gift of this day is fellowship with our triune God in a unique way. That's the gift of the day. <laughs> it's entering into fellowship. True, this, is Paul, this is John, right? Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. It's this unique communion. What's fellowship? What's communion? It's sitting down at a table together. It's reclining in the arms of Christ as John did around bread and wine, which is why we mark the table every week because it visibly, by taste, by scent, presses home upon our hearts that we're welcome at God's table, that we have fellowship with our maker and our redeemer in the Son by the Spirit. That's the high point of the day. The high point of the day isn't a nap. (laughs) The richness of the, the feast of the day is being welcomed by our maker. 
being assured that he welcomes us, being assured that he withholds no good thing from us. But mark the fleshly tendency to come to the Sabbath and think, this is my day, and I'll give the Lord a small piece so that I can really get back to my business. Beloved, that's ignoring the feast. I mean, there's parables about this. Are the goal? Go out into the roads. Go out into the country. Tell them the feast is ready. Tell them the banquet's been set. Tell them to come. Tell them to come. And what do they do? They say, I've got business to take care of. Rejecting the call of life. How can the God who gives us sun and rain meat and wine? How can the Father who gives us eternal life and the beloved Son call us unto anything that will do us harm? He's called us to set apart one whole day in seven, and this in accord with his wisdom and his goodness. But if one error is denying him the whole day, the other is we foolishly ignore the design of one day. One day. It strikes me that those things are related. Track with me here and ignore my adorable daughter. (laughs) Unignorable and adorable. (laughs) I get it. I get it. I get it. These things are related. If you downplay the significance of the whole day, you're going to try and rig up something beyond the one day. There's many sincere Christians in churches where the practice is in and out an hour. And they're like, what? (laughs) That's not it. That can't be it. This isn't it. This isn't the Christian life. And so what do they do? They ask for more. More gatherings throughout the week. And well-intentioned churches comply. So there's home groups. There's Bible studies. There's youth groups. There's men's meetings. There's women's meetings. All of which, again, well and good unless... They're really band-aids for ignoring the Sabbath. In which case, they're never going to satisfy. Why? Because if one isn't satisfied in the one day the Lord uniquely sets apart for his worship, then why would the designs of men satisfy? It'd be like leaving a Michelin star restaurant to beg to stop at McDonald's on the way home. It'd be like refusing a beach vacation for a kiddie pool in the backyard. Sure, there's some relation between the two concepts, but there's really no comparison. Now, I got a little amped up there, so I don't want you to misunderstand me through the noise. I'm not necessarily against any and all midweek corporate spiritual activity. What I am advocating is that we be honest with ourselves. And realize that unless we recover a robust delight in the Sabbath day, the day the Lord has uniquely given us for heavenly matters, everything else runs the risk of becoming religious activity for the sake of religious activity at worst, or at best, the designs of men competing with the simple and elegant design of God. 
I've made this argument before. The six days of scattering are not a flaw to be overcome. It's God's design to send light into this dark world. It's God's design for us as pilgrims such that we live our little Christian lives in faith and hope and love in all sorts of different places, bearing testimony to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord everywhere, though not everywhere acknowledges it. This is what you do by conducting yourself in a Christian manner in your lawful callings. You say, yeah, I work for you, but I serve Jesus Christ is Lord. That's part of the design. <laughs> you do that for six days. That dominates your lives for six days during the week. That's how God has it. And not only that, by this design, he keeps us hungry for the Sabbath day. And even more so that eternal Sabbath, when Christ makes all things new, all in all. I pray that by Saturday night, you are hungry for the heavenly bread. Because you've been shoulder to shoulder with a world feeding on dust for six days. And maybe you gather around the light of God's word with your family. And that refreshes you and sustains you. But not like this. Not like the day of the public proclamation. Not like the day of the visible proof that God saves sinners that God is operative in his providence, caring for all of our individual lives and circumstances such that every single one of us has a thousand testimonies to his faithfulness in our back pocket that we can pull out at any moment to encourage any other weary saint. Private devotions are wonderful. Family worship is wonderful. But the public worship of God is as close as we're going to get to heaven, this side of heaven. Hope you're hungry for the Sabbath by the time Saturday night rolls around. I hope you're starting to pray, Lord, prepare our hearts to feast. Pray for me. Bless Pat. Saturdays are oddly rough for me. I mean, it makes sense because it's spiritual warfare. Saturday afternoon, Saturdays are rough for me. Pray for me. I covet your prayers. Pray for us. That as the Lord gets us hungry. He's also preparing a meal for us that will be fed on that heavenly manna. Each week we're apart for six days. Maybe we text, maybe we call, maybe we have a visit here or there. And those things are lovely and good and right, but it's no substitute for the public worship, the enjoyment of the feast day that God himself has given us. It shouldn't be a substitute. It can't be a substitute. Hope you're hungry by the time Sunday rolls around because the Lord prepares his table. So then what specifically does sanctifying the day look like? You'll notice the question lines up. There's both negative elements, not negative in that they're bad, but negative in that you refrain from doing something and positive elements, not in that they're better, but in that you actually do something negative, positive. We're going to look at just the first negative element tonight. And then we'll resume the considerations next week. So we Sabbath by ceasing. 
That's what the word means, Sabbath, to cease from doing something, to stop from doing something, to leave off doing something, to rest from doing something. And the first thing, we cease from toil. That's one of the most striking aspects of the commandment in both Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. So Exodus 20.10, On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. You can hear this comprehensive concern for everyone laboring, even down to the animals. Deuteronomy 5 makes it even plainer. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And then he reminds them that they were slaves in Egypt. He reminds them of their weariness. He reminds them of their toil. He reminds them of how tired it made them because of the burdens that they were made to bear. Now, again, certainly there is a spiritual reality in that, and that the Exodus is a, a type of the redemption that we've experienced as Christ takes the yoke of sin, the burden of sin from us, and brings us into the rest. But we ought not to overlook the plain sense that the Lord cares for our bodies. <laughs> And the aches and the pains that come from our labors in this world. Isn't that what Christ says? Look, your Father knows you need these things. I've mentioned this passage a lot these days, Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows we are dust. The strongest among us is still dust. The strongest among us still has a particularly weak constitution. (laughs) I don't think it's a coincidence that Psalm 104 follows Psalm 103. Psalm 104 is full of the physical refreshment that God showers upon creation. We read this morning, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the hearts of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Again, we said that we don't have to blow past the physical provision to get at the true spiritual provision. It starts with the physical provision, and then that catapults us into understanding the riches of the spiritual provision. And here it starts with, he gives us physical rest. That was the concern there. Their bodies were breaking down. If you toil... At a difficult labor for seven straight days, age without end, you're going to break down very soon. It's part of God's design that we rest. I think we're right to hear in the fourth commandment a sensitivity to the weariness that comes with six days of labor. And it's a sensitivity that extends unto the lowly, children, servants, animals, We all need physical rest. Psalms will highlight that it's one of the acts of hubris of man to think that he can do away with sleep. And so he fills the nighttime with plans for evil. You got to sleep, man. 
We need sleep. We need rest. We see it play out every day, don't we? The Lord gives us a supply of strength that's spent in lawful labors. And then comes sleep and the need for refreshment. The need to be recreated. And the same plays out over the course of the week. There's a cumulative fatigue that sets in when a week is spent in earnest and hard work. You're probably tired by Friday, Saturday. It assumes that the Lord has given us work to do, but he also acknowledges that we're weak. (laughs) That we need rest and refreshment. The Lord gives us work to do and he expects that we work hard at it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do so with all your might. You've, each of you, lawful, earthly callings that the Lord has given you. Praise be his name. And as Christians, you're given the gift of laboring not ultimately unto men, but unto the Lord. Knowing that even though you have a boss on earth, you labor before your heavenly Father. You labor before the Lord Jesus Christ. And it infuses an excellence into what you do. It's not... An excuse in Scripture to say, well, I don't work for you, so I don't have to work hard. No, it says, I work for Christ, so I work even harder. And so by the time this day comes around, Christians are doubly tired because we have an excellent Lord for whom we are expending our energy. Are you? It's season of strength sort of thing as well. Some are in the age of a different sort of labors. But many of us are engaged in this. Those are good gifts from the Lord. The strength that the young men possess, the strength that the young women, that's a gift from the Lord to have that vitality. Christ here calls us unto a remarkable breath of lawful activity in which we can expend it to labor unto him, but then he expects that we'll be tired by the end. And then we come before him and enjoy rest. But practically, what does that mean? It means it is a day for naps. Not first and foremost. Not such that it takes away from the feast that Christ prepares for us as he refreshes our soul. It's a day for walks. It's a day for that which refreshes you as the other six days perhaps don't. Once upon a time, we talked about Sunday dinners. It was a special meal. It was a a meal that got a little extra attention and care. It strikes me as suitable. It strikes me as fitting. Again, none of that detracts from the call to worship. None of that dislocates the feast of the Lord's Supper, the feast of the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins, the feast of a God who is well-pleased in us. But don't blow past God's gifts in that way. It is a day of rest even in that most basic sense as well. So we can bring this time to a close, remembering that regardless of the week that we have, the circumstances in which God has us, we Sabbath by faith in the Lord of the Sabbath. And it's by faith that we set apart one whole day, trusting that this is our creator and our redeemer's design and good purpose for us. And one of the ways we do so is by ceasing from our toilsome labors, recognizing even in the weariness of our flesh and bones that we are creatures and we are utterly dependent upon a creator to refresh and sustain us for as long as he gives us in this sad world. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and its riches. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. 
For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Mm -hmm.